This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We've got video going this time, so if you're watching, hello. Great to have you watching along on the podcast. If you're listening along per usual, great to have you all tuned in to another episode of the show as we continue to explore important trends, technologies, strategies, and give high-level and niche analysis on the future and the now of the larger oil and gas industry and energy industry as well. So as we dig into today's talking points and today's conversation, I want to make sure you've got all the opportune content that you need to be fully caught up on the show. So make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, that's opportune.com for more information on our solutions and services, but also for more opportune content, including episodes of the podcast, but also other articles, videos, white papers, research, you name it. All right, folks, I'm really excited for today's conversation. I'm going to try to keep the intro short so we can get right to the meat of it. But today's conversation is really going to challenge the conception of the larger green energy transition, right? Our audience is well aware of the utility that fossil fuels currently play in our global economy. But in a lot of ways, even the most bullish of oil and gas companies and ENPs uh, still, you know, uh, I guess, follow the larger narrative and trend that renewables are the future, right? We need to be transitioning away from fossil fuels and therefore to get to the point of having a green economy or a green energy infrastructure and ecosystem, the departure from fossil fuels will be a critical part of that puzzle, right? But what if that wasn't necessarily the case? And what if we need to rethink that narrative and at least expand our understanding of what role fossil fuels play, not just in the short term, but in the long term? Of human development. And that is the larger question that we're going to pose today. And we're going to pick our expert's brain today on the subject. I'm very pleased to welcome one of the most prominent thought leaders that's been following this line of thought to its conclusion. He's a New York Times bestselling author, introducing Mr. Alex Epstein. He's an energy expert and also the founder of the Center for Industrial progress. He also just released a new book called Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. Alex, great to have you on. How are you doing? Uh, hey, Daniel. Thanks for the very thoughtful intro. Looking forward to discussing this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a pleasure getting to pick your brain on this, like I said. And, um, you know, the Opportune team was very excited uh, to have you on the show because you were actually already a guest speaker at the firm's mid-year meeting. So we thought, hey, we don't want to keep these insights siloed. Let's bring you on to the customer-facing side of our content and share uh, your great thoughts with uh, the rest of our audience and um, content base, right? So thanks again for joining. Uh, I want to give a chance for you to expand a bit more on your background here. Um, you know, I mentioned your high level credentials, but if you could give us that 
journey or that timeline of how you landed at where you're at today with your understanding of the energy industry's ecosystem uh, and the role of fossil fuels in that ecosystem? Give us the, the elevator pitch. Sure. So, I mean, part of my background is that there was no expectation I would ever go into energy, let alone fossil fuels. I mean, I grew up with a pretty technical background. I went to some elite math and science programs, and I studied computer science during a lot of my tenure at Duke University. Um, but really the thing, I certainly had no love for the energy industry. I grew up in an anti-fossil fuel environment. I didn't learn anything positive about fossil fuels uh, into my early 20s. And so I never thought, oh, yeah, you're going to become the world's leading champion of fossil fuels. Quite, quite the contrary. I thought, well, why, why are we still using fossil fuels? Like, shouldn't we be using something else by now? I mean, we've been using them forever. Uh, so I, I definitely didn't have the love for it. But my real background is in philosophy. And so philosophy is all about how do you think carefully about important issues, including challenging, thinking about your thinking methods. And this is really what led me to think differently about energy. I noticed that you know, when we evaluate, say, a prescription drug or an antibiotic or a vaccine, we look carefully at the benefits and the side effects. And then I noticed that when we look at fossil fuels, we just look for negative side effects and ignore benefits. And about 15 years ago, I started learning about some of the benefits of fossil fuels, including one that's finally coming to light to many people today, which is for food. Fossil fuels provide the fertilizers that we need to grow food for 8 billion people, and they provide the fuel for the diesel-powered largely machines that allow one person to do the work of 1,000 people, 1,000 manual laborers. Like I realize we're talking about getting rid of fossil fuels, but we're not talking about these huge benefits. But if we lost these benefits, it would be like the end of the world for much of the world. And so I really got interested in, well, what's the actual truth about this issue? And if we look carefully at the benefits and the side effects, what, where do we actually end up? And I really saw that I didn't think anyone had done that properly. So I just became a self-taught energy expert. And that's all my, I mean, I, and part of the way I teach myself is I read, and then I also just reach out to professors and talk to them directly and interview them. And I had a, I've had a podcast for a long time called Power Hour, where I learned a lot, but yeah, it's basically philosophy, thinking the way that we think about it is wrong, and then just deciding to become an energy expert so I could get the answers that no one else was giving me. Yeah, I think you bring up a uh, really prescient point there in that without addressing actual scalable alternatives, the conversation of ditching fossil fuels uh, ends up feeling more like a pipe dream, I guess pun intended here, right? Than, um, you know, than an actual achievable strategy. And there have been, uh, you know, policy proposals for, you know, 2040, 2050 type goals for net zero emissions, right? Um, but, I think in your research, what has stood out to me is your intersection with how fossil fuels have been critical in helping the developing world develop and achieve levels of industrialization that for some countries are actually setting uh, historical standards for um, you know, poverty alleviation, for um, economic growth, GDP growth, right? And so... Let's break that down in some of your research on that side of things. Uh, can you expand a bit on in your journey through understanding the role of fossil fuels? What have you learned about how fossil fuels are currently and sort of how they in the long term will be or, con or continue to need to be used for um, global development? 
Sure. So I think there are a few facts that I, when I was speaking at Opportune, I described these as undeniable facts because I don't really think anyone has an answer to them. And yet part of what happens is they are denied by omission because we don't look at the benefits of fossil fuels. So we just don't think about these things. But so here, here are some of the basic facts. So one is that fossil fuels today are a uniquely cost-effective source of energy, meaning they provide low-cost, reliable energy for every type of machine on a scale of billions of people in thousands of places. Uh, specifically, they provide 80% of the world's energy, and importantly, that energy use is growing, particularly in the parts of the world that care most about cost-effective energy, such as China. So this already, this one fact, really... Uh, questions this whole idea of an energy transition, because the idea is we're rapidly transitioning away from fossil fuels, but fossil fuels are 80% of the world's energy and they're still growing. So that is at most an addition, right? It's an addition of other forms of energy. It is not a transition. And I would argue right now, it's an unreliable, expensive energy addition, the way that it's occurring. So we can talk about that, but that's just the basic thing. Fossil fuels are a uniquely cost-effective source of energy, and they appear to be going forward given the actual trends. Um, then, you know, the second thing is that uh, that cost-effective energy is desperately needed throughout the world. We have, you know, six billion people in the world who use an amount of energy that you and I would consider unacceptable. 3 billion people using less electricity than a typical American refrigerator, one third of the world using wood and animal dung as their primary fuels for heating and cooking. So the world is just so underpowered. So we have this uniquely cost-effective source of energy and it's the value it provides is desperately needed. And then the third thing, which is really the core of my work, is that cost-effective energy is essential to what I call human flourishing. And the basic idea here is the more cost-effective energy is, the more people can use machines to be productive and prosperous. Without machines, human beings are very unproductive, and the world is a very poor place and a very dangerous place. By using machines to produce all kinds of value, like a modern combine harvester that can produce, that can reap and thresh as much wheat as a thousand manual labor or something like that, that's how we live in an abundant and safe world. But that all depends on this cost-effective energy. Interestingly, the safety of climate also depends on how cost-effective energy is. I point out that thanks to using fossil fuels to power all these amazing machines like heating machines, cooling machines, irrigation machines, you know, drought relief vehicles, the, actually the rate of death from climate-related disasters, people don't know this, but it's, it's demonstrated, is down 98% over the last 100 years, even as we've had one degree Celsius, two degrees Fahrenheit of warming. So what we've got is we've got this incredibly cost-effective source of energy. We desperately need more of that value. That value is crucial to human flourishing, including the safety of climate. And yet our whole set of institutions and people that we're calling experts are totally denying all these benefits. And that's why just by following a tiny fraction of their policies so far, we have a global energy crisis because the, the fossil fuel benefit deniers are leading what I call our knowledge system. You mentioned an example there that I want to expand on slightly, or at least just use as sort of a, an anecdote um, that I relate to, or, um, you know, at least that I've, I've done my own sort of little, um, reading up on, right? Um, but you brought up China. Uh, China has been a, an economic growth, you know, miracle, as a lot of economists have called it. And one of the major, mm, you know, aspects of what has achieved that level of growth and record poverty alleviation, um, you know, the, the lifting of people out of absolute poverty, and also uh, bringing 
a lot of what you said, conveniences of modern life to rural areas has been due to industrial development and through uh, actually policies of taking, for example, rural workers to industrial sectors and sort of, um, you know, uh, shipping them out to different cities, helping boost the economy, get paid, bring that money back to their rural sectors and then advance the economy in their in their uh local regional areas, right? I know that's sort of more of a, a social and economic policy, but it still speaks to the role that industrialization led by a reliance on, like you said, fossil fuels is contributing to the advancement and development of, uh, you know, various societies, but also at various levels, right? It's not just advancing uh, or uh, uh, improving the developing world, but it's also still playing a critical role in the developed or the you know very close to developed, close to uh, number one leading economy, honestly, in the world. So I just bring that up because um, you know I think it it reflects the example you were giving. But do you have any other anecdotes, or if you want to you know further expand on what I just brought up, feel free uh, on the current role that fossil fuels are playing in. Um, you know, industrialization policy and sort of um, human development policy, either, you know, in uh, the East, the West, anywhere. I think it's important that it's it's everywhere. So you, you, you indicated this. So, you know, if China, which, had, you know, which used to be extremely, extremely poor and is, you know, much wealthier now than it used to be in terms of the average person there, but is nowhere near where the U.S. is. And so you have, you know, uh, India, which on average is poorer than China, and then you have places even poorer than that. And in all cases, fossil fuels are crucial. So that if you take the wealthiest parts of the world, there's this idea that, oh, the poor parts of the world, can af we, we can afford to not use fossil fuels, uh, but the poor parts can't. Well, that's half true. The poor parts can't, but we can't. We're using fossil fuels all the time. Look at what's happening with Germany as they, they had this very ill-fated experiment trying to, quote, get off fossil fuels, which really meant having a bunch of solar and wind that requires constant life support by natural gas, which they didn't think about where that comes from. And so that comes from Russia, which led to all sorts of problems. What are they doing right now? They're using more coal. So the, just the world is a fossil-fueled world. And it's, it's very important that nobody in the world has figured out how to produce cost-effective energy on a large scale without the use of fossil fuels, without the very significant use of fossil fuels. The closest example anyone could think of uh, would be places that for electricity and sometimes heat use nuclear, hydro, or in the one, really one case of Iceland, uh, geothermal. And nuclear in particular, I think is the most promising because it has the ability theoretically to scale uh, all around the world. But we're still talking about 5% of the world's energy. And given the regulatory st uh, status of it right now, which I regard as it's basically criminalized, uh, it, it's you're talking decades and generations away. So I'm the biggest advocate of nuclear in the world. But it is not the kind of thing that you say, oh, let's jump on this nuclear boat. So let's first cut a hole in our boat. And then the nuclear boat, like the nuclear boat is not there. That boat needs to be built. And there's a lot of difficulty in building that. A lot of policy changes. So the whole world is fossil fuel. The rich world is fossil fueled, the kind of developing world is fossil fueled, the undeveloped world, it needs to be fossil fueled. And, you know, one statistic that you, you um, mentioned this issue earlier is just what's happened to the rate of poverty. So one statistic I think is really striking and not, and not discussed enough is that from 1980 to the present, we have extreme poverty. So people living on less than $2 a day adjusted for inflation has gone from 40% 
over 40% of the population to 10%. So that is, you know, billions of people literally getting out of poverty. And it's so clearly tied to fossil fuels because you, you need machines to make people productive and prosperous, including, by the way, the wealthy world has been very helpful because in part, we create all this medical innovation and other stuff and kind of water purification innovation that helps everyone. But yeah, we everyone depends on this fossil fuel world. And again, fossil fuel use is, is growing. So this idea of rapid elimination should not be on the table, in my view, particularly once you recognize, oh, wait, we need fossil fuels to be safe from climate. And if we, we master climate, we can deal with almost any kind of climate difficulty. And I, I talk about it in my book, which by the way, people can check out fossilfuture.com. I know I signed a lot of copies at Opportune, which was, was really fun. Uh, if you read sort of the climate stuff, what you get is, yeah, we do impact climate. We do have a warming impact on climate, but it is not nowhere near a catastrophe and nothing resembling the, I believe, apocalypse that would happen if you try to pursue net zero. Again, in a world where cost-effective energy is essentially human flourishing, fossil fuels are a unique source of it, and it's desperately needed by billions of people who don't have it. Let's uh, piggyback off of you bringing up the book. Um, I want to just sort of open up the floor here for what have been some of the most uh, prescient, useful, actionable insights that you've gained since uh, you know beginning research on developing and then releasing this book, right? Uh, between your release of your initial book and now Fossil Future, how has your perspective expanded and in what actionable ways? Well, if you want to talk actionable, I'll just do one issue from from two perspectives. So the, the, the issue I'd focus on is just this issue of looking carefully at the benefits and side effects of everything, including fossil fuels. So I think this is crucial both for your thinking. So when you're thinking about this or anything else, doing that. And one, one wrinkle that I've focused on much more in fossil future that I've gotten clearer on is that when you're thinking of side effects or environmental side effects, you have to be open not only to negative, but also positive ones. So when you're looking at the impacts of CO2, you want to look at things like heat waves, but you also want to look at things like fewer cold-related deaths in parts of the world that are becoming warmer. You want to look at things like global greening. So one thing I point out in fossil futures, we have a bias against human impact. So we kind of assume it's going to be bad. But you can't do that. You just have to look empirically. Hey, is this good for us? Is this bad for us? What degree? So this idea of, I call it looking at the full context, benefits, side effects, including not having an anti-human bias with the side effects, that's very important in your thinking. Uh, but then in chapter 11, which is the last chapter I talked about, how it's very valuable in conversation. And one of the things I stressed, I stress in a lot of my talks is uh, when you are when you're having a conversation with somebody, probably the single most valuable thing you can do before you go into a huge number of facts is to get agreement. Hey, we agree that we need to look carefully at both the benefits and the side effects. And, and I, I, I talk about this as a form of framing, as, as setting up a starting structure in the conversation that will make everything else go better. And the thing about this idea of the full context benefits and side effects is everyone agrees that it's right but almost nobody will do it. So if you can get agreement about something like that explicitly, then people will follow it and they'll start weighing this issue in an even-handed, precise way versus just having the default of, here's a storm, it was caused by fossil fuels. This happened, it was caused by, like only looking for negatives and ignoring positives. So that, those are, you know, that insight of the full context, how to use it to improve your thinking and how to use it to improve your conversations is one of the big things I've gotten. 
So when you speak on improving sort of how we conceive of this larger narrative and even discuss potential solutions or long-term strategies, I think a big one, and you brought this up earlier, is addressing the sort of uh, the apocalypse narrative, the catastrophizing narrative, right? When people describe the effects of climate change and our need, our urgent need to reduce those negative externalities um that you know climate alarmism obviously isn't new um and the research around climate change impacts around climate change has been going on for decades at this point but i'm curious what techniques or arguments you can share for our listeners to um you know expand how we talk about this issue and bring a more nuanced and layered approach to uh, a healthy discussion on our energy future that keeps in mind uh, the uh, realities that transitioning full scale away from fossil fuels probably is going to take longer than imagined and may not even be the net goal that we should be pushing for in the first place, right? So what strategies would you offer for maneuvering that shift in understanding this narrative and discussing useful strategies and solutions? Well, let me let me build on what I just said, since I think it, a lot of it applies here. So the, this idea of looking at the full context, carefully look at the benefits and side effects, I think that's the single most important thing for thinking about climate. So one is that when we think about climate, we don't think of it as its own issue. There's this mistake of thinking about, hey, let's talk about climate change. This, this is its own issue. But quote unquote climate change, and it's much better to call it you know, climate impact, is that is a side effect of fossil fuel use, which is something that 8 billion people need to live. So it'd be like if you're concerned about the side effects of, an, of a prescription drug, you can't just hold a conference on the side effects of it and not talk at all about the benefits. Because if you did, you would you would not use that drug no matter how beneficial it was, because everything has some sort of side effect, almost everything. So it's the, the one thing is just saying, hey, would you getting this agreement with people? Hey, do you agree that, okay, we need to look at the climate impacts, but we also need to look at the benefits that come along with that. Sort of that's one. And then number two is we need to look at the climate benefits that come with the energy. I call them the climate mastery benefits. We have to recognize, hey, one of the big things we do with fossil fuels is we make our climate far more livable through things like heating when it's cold, you know, cooling when it's hot. Irrigating is a huge one that I bring up a lot. You know, irrigating to alleviate drought, to make sure you have enough crops, having vehicles that can take food from one place to another. We have to look at all these climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. And when we're thinking about any kinds of climate changes, we have to factor in, hey, we're really good at dealing with climate dangers. And the statistic that I, I drive home a lot is, you know, we've we've taken climate-related disaster deaths down already. So from storms, flood, uh, extreme heat, extreme cold, wildfires, those are down 98% over the last 100 years, even though many of our leading thinkers predicted they would increase dramatically. So we need to recognize that fossil fuels give us this amazing climate mastery ability and so when we're looking at the side effects, we have to look at, okay, is there really anything so dire and such a huge change that we're going to go from getting safer from climate to the world is just going to be totally unlivable? Like, And just common sense, if we've warmed one degree Celsius, two degrees Fahrenheit, and the world is more livable than ever, we're safer from climate than ever, do you really expect the next degree to be the apocalypse and then the third thing is when we're looking at, at the actual climate effects, we have to be we have to look at them with precision and be open to negative and positive. And I talk about some of these facts at opportune, but there are facts such as 
there are still more, way more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths in the world. So the world is still too cold for most people. It's also very cold by geological standards and very low CO2 by geological standards. And we have no way of even getting to one quarter of the historical high of CO2. Um, there are other things as well to stress, but the base, and, and I'd highly recommend checking out Fossil Future or the, the free website, energytalkingpoints.com, has a lot of this stuff. But you just kind of get the idea that, okay, we're going to look at the benefits of fossil fuels. We're going to look, including all the climate mastery benefits, and when we look at the climate impact, we're not going to assume it's all bad and it's catastrophe. We're going to look in an even-handed way at what's the bad and what's the good and then factor in our ability to deal with it. And I think once you do that, you see, yeah, we've gotten safer from climate. The world is getting better. And there's no reason whatsoever to expect the world to get worse, even as it warms in the future. Whereas there's infinite reason to know the world will get worse if we rapidly eliminate fossil fuels without a replacement. Now, speaking of replacements, you brought this up earlier, but um, you know, there's a lot of um, resurging activism and uh, you know validation for the role of nuclear moving forward. Um, it has often been demonized as a very unsafe energy source and something we need to sort of full scale, not even consider as part of a larger expansion. Uh, of our energy sources, and uh, you know, even in the conversation of transitioning away from fossil fuels, uh, we do see several countries. Um, I believe France uh, has a pretty significant portion of its uh, energy uh, sources coming from nuclear, uh, and I know that uh, countries like China, again, are also debating expanding and investing in their own nuclear footprint. So as we think about alternatives, uh, we'll get to renewable energies here in a second and their role. But let's talk about the other sort of, like you said, criminalized energy source here, nuclear. Uh, what role do you see it playing moving forward? And how should we think about it as an alternative or another you know, chapter in the you know, energy transition and energy source expansion narrative? I mean, I think we should. So what one... One thing I didn't mention before that I think is helpful is I, I would caution against using the term energy transition because it's it doesn't describe reality. It's similar to climate emergency. Those those aren't real things. Uh, and so I never use terms that are, don't describe real things. But you can describe energy evolution, which captures the only legitimate element of energy transition, which is that you you want to change, in a sense, transition to a better state of affairs going forward. But that doesn't mean you transition away from things, it just means you're moving. So evolution much, or you can call it progress as well. So if we look at energy evolution, I think of nuclear as the most promising alternative in energy evolution. But And the reason I say it's the most promising, it has some very promising physical fundamentals. It's a very concentrated store of energy. Both of those are important. So it stores, a, it has a lot of energy in a small space, and it's a store all the big, all the most successful forms of energy we have today are natural stores of energy. Nature stores the energy in some form, and then we release it. Versus, we have to build our own man-made storage system uh, to have reliable energy, which is that's the, the basic problem with solar and wind. In practice, they just use fossil fuels as a storage system, but that obviously doesn't work if you want to get off fossil fuels. So, nuclear has that huge potential. It's concentrated, stored. It's very abundant. So it has, the, and, and we also know that historically in the 70s in particular, it provided low cost, reliable electricity. So not all forms of energy, but really good at electricity. It also has 
obvious potential for heat because it just it generates electricity via heat. So it could produce high levels of heat for industry, residential heat. And then we know that it's very good for very large vehicles. So it has a lot of applications in mobility too, which is often a challenge for other things, particularly things like cargo ships. And we know it does aircraft carriers, icebreakers. So it's got all of this potential. And at the same time, we know that it has that potential has not come to fruition in anywhere near the way that was expected. And I think the obvious thing is that governments really clamped down on it and really treated it as this is a uniquely dangerous form of energy that in effect needs infinite regulation, infinite delay, infinite ability of activists to stop it. And the price of nuclear electricity in the US has gone up by something like a factor of 10. And even in the cheaper places around the world like South Korea, it's not as cheap as it used to be adjusted for inflation in the 70s. So I think really what we need is some is free market innovation. And I've been working on what I call the energy freedom platform. And, and part of it is decriminalize nuclear and really radically reform all the institutions holding it back. And you need similar things around the world. As long as it, so what's happened now is there's, there's new favor for nuclear, but it's overwhelmingly in the form of government controlled things. And that is not going to lead to the level of innovation that makes it scalable and cheap for everyone. And that's what you really want to need. You want it to be scalable and cheap for everyone. So I think in the US and maybe a handful of other countries, we have the 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 opportunity to create the legal framework where you can actually have free market innovation in nuclear. And I'm working really hard on that, but it, it hasn't happened yet. Like I haven't succeeded, others haven't succeeded in that. So right now it's very much like a government criminalized and then paradoxically also government subsidized. So the government like chops off its legs and then it pushes it forward in the wheelchair. But neither of those is 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 what we want. So it has unlimited potential, but it's it's very much potential. And now let's get to the other alternative here and the narrative that we are uh, you know challenging to some degree with our conversation today, and that would be the transition to renewable energies. So solar, wind biofuels, geothermal. Um, you know, obviously you advocate that the world needs more fossil fuels, not less, if it wants to continue to flourish and develop. So my question then is, where does renewable energy fit into a future energy landscape and one that is attempting to address any of the negative externalities that do exist from our current energy use uh, and some of the policies around, um, you know, either uh, expanding that use, uh, or, you know, bringing the power of industrialization to developing nations, et cetera. Where do we fit in green energy technology? And do you think it has any sort of place in this larger narrative? Is it a binary choice, right? Where we have to pick one or the other, uh, break down your view and research on this. Sure. And just since you brought up externalities a couple of times, I'd highly recommend people read the end of chapter four of Fossil Future, because I think very differently about this issue, including I think that when people use externalities, they tend to ignore positive externalities, which are huge with fossil fuels. So there's this issue of, again, it's the benefit denial. It's only looking at negatives. I think it's a kind of more academic way of benefit denying fossil fuels the way it's used. Uh, but yeah, so with the others, what, what I really advocate and what we really need fundamentally is energy freedom. So that's the freedom to to uh, produce energy and consume energy as we judge best with laws protecting us from genuine endangerment. And I talk a lot about what that means in chapter 10 because the issue with genuine endangerment is 
it, you can't say that anything that has any negative impact endangers people, because if the benefits that come along with it are much bigger than that, then you're actually endangering people by restricting something. So if you were in, you know, primitive times and you said, oh, well, fi fire is endangering people, so I'm going to save everyone's health by banning fire, well, then everyone would have died very, very uh, early. So it, it's there's there's a sophistication to how to think about it in terms of genuine endangerment, but that's the high level is you want to protect people, you know, from things like pipeline explosions and somebody just totally putting soot in somebody else's air, that kind of thing. But you want people to be free to produce and consume energy. And so I think the what I can say is I can say based on what we've seen so far and what I see the current evidence is what will prevail. But the real thing is I'm interested in creating the the legal framework where the best technologies can prevail. So if solar and wind are more promising than I think, they can prove themselves versus me, Alex Epstein, saying, hey, I don't think they're as promising as, as others think. So I think from that perspective, when people use the term renewables, it usually means solar and wind. And I think this itself is suspicious because hydro is the most proven form of, quote, renewable energy. And yet it's it's opposed by most of the, quote, renewable movement. Often official designations of renewables will separate hydro into this like bastard category that's not good. And I think what this gets at is there's this whole emphasis on renewable that's based on kind of being natural and hydro is considered not natural because it allegedly interferes too much uh, with nature. And I, I think that's the totally wrong way of thinking about things in general. Um, so, but, but, so what, the reason I'm pointing that out is I think that the obsession with solar and wind is not based on their demonstrated economic merits, but rather the idea that they're somehow superior because they're natural in harmony with nature, this kind of thing. Because if you look at their actual economic merits, they have this obvious, there's a couple obvious things, um, more than a couple actually, but you know, the 3% of the world's energy, they're just providing electricity. They're, because they're fundamentally intermittent or unreliable, they are, uh, they are totally dependent on reliable sources of energy. Storage is nowhere near at a level where you just have solar and wind and storage. So they depend on fossil fuels, nuclear, or hydro in almost every case, or maybe, you know, maybe oil occasionally, or maybe, yeah, coal, maybe basically coal, gas, nuclear, hydro, and then occasionally like oil or wood or something like that. So they depend on reliables and they only exist in significant quantities where subsidized and they, the, if you look at the large regions that have more adoption of them, like Germany or say California and the U.S., you see the prices increasing. So none of, and then you're also seeing reliability problems where you have greater penetration. So none of these are good signs in terms of this is going to take, this is taking the world by storm. This has none of the signs of this is this major rapid evolution, but rather this is a forced, which these are being forced on us. And they're having all sorts of, of problems, and they have the obvious problem that they're unreliable, which means, and they can go to near zero at any time, which means that you need almost 100% backup, which that's always going to make the cost high because you have to pay for the regular reliable infrastructure and the unreliable infrastructure. And we see in California and Texas, when you try to cut, the, when you try to cut down on reliable infrastructure, or in Texas's case, when you try to cut down on things like weatherization to pay for all this stuff, then you run into big reliability problems. So I think of these as right now, they are parasites that are not successfully uh, evolving the energy world. I, I'm open to the fact that, they, that the idea they could have a marginal role, but I think we really need grid fairness policies where you have to, where basically my, my belief of the way to do it is Generators should have to sell the grid reliable electricity wherever it comes from. And if you think you can generate reliable electricity with solar and wind and gas or batteries, 
then you just make your own black box that does that and you sell it to the grid. But right now you're allowed to sell unreliable electricity to the grid and then it's everyone else's responsibility to handle it and you get paid just as much for that unreliable electricity and with subsidies, you get even more. So right now they're just totally unfairly preferred and they are nothing resembling a scalable replacement for fossil fuels. For, for more on that, I talk about this a lot in chapter six, but I would point to the fact that we're so obsessed with renewables versus cost-effective alternatives, and we have hostility toward nuclear and hydro, points to this is not really a movement that's interested in having the best energy, including the cleanest energy. It's interested in being, quote, natural. And one of my big points in Fossil Future is the hostility, I believe the hostility toward fossil fuels is fundamentally that just using a lot of energy, period, has a lot of impact on nature. And the leading thinkers who oppose fossil fuels just think that's bad. So it's not so much about the side effects of fossil fuels. It's actually the benefits to fossil fuels and that they support a world of 8 billion potentially prosperous people. That's actually what, what upsets people who think that human impact is bad and should be reduced or eliminated. Well, Alex, your insights have been great so far. Thank you again for taking time on the show. I think I've only got one last main question for you, then I'll open it up to final thoughts. Um, but you know, I think a, a major component of your books and of this conversation of reframing larger conversations around our energy future and uh, the transition away from fossil fuels, uh, it's all very predicated on these conversations being heavily politicized. And, you know, I would argue most things in life have a political angle, but I would also say that particularly they've been sort of uh, siloed into partisan conversations, right? Because things being politicized, but then also being sort of uh, siloed into side left versus side right, uh, it, it very much makes it a binary when the conversation is often more gray, more layered, more nuanced. So I'm curious why you think energy policy and climate change have become so politicized, right? What are the leading factors here that we need to be keeping in mind as we rethink our conversations? And, uh, you know, do you see a world where we can take this conversation, evolve it and make it more productive? Or does the short term kind of look like we're going to be stuck in this oscillating binary of options? It's a good question. I, do, I don't think I have a comprehensive understanding of everything that's going on. But a few things are that, I mean, one is energy policy is a political issue. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it gets politicized, but it's going to be of significant interest to people in politics. A second issue is that um, t it, there tends to be, people tend to think of it as, well, if fossil fuels have negative or significantly negative climate side effects, that means that the government has to have a massive increase in power. And for certain political views, that's very appealing. And for certain political views, it's very unappealing. And so you tend to see the people who tend to want more government power for everything else really like the idea of fossil fuels causing these big problems. And people who don't like that, uh, don't like the government having a lot of power, tend to not uh, not like the idea of the government needing a lot of power to combat this. I, to that, I would just combat, I mean, I'm somebody who doesn't want the government to have a lot of power over the economy. Uh, I think that if you had the need, if there was actually like a catastrophic climate thing, you would still need to figure out how do we, how do we deal with it in a way that maximizes freedom? Because freedom is the only way we're productive and it's the only way we're adaptable. So 
one kind of giveaway that a lot of these climate schemes are ridiculous is when it's, hey, let's have the government, like let's have Bernie Sanders and AOC, not to pick on them in particular, but like let's have them redo the whole energy economy. Like as soon as it's let's have some bureaucrats or like as soon as you have that view, then you're just back into like the statism, status control of the economy that leads to failure, even if you don't have a big problem. It's just like under say communism and all forms of socialism. So I think it, that, but that is a tension. People tend to think of it as, oh, if I, if I believe in these really big negative climate impacts, then that goes against freedom. And my view is you can't think that way. You need to be very objective about what the impacts are. And then if you're pro-freedom, think about what's a pro-freedom way to deal with it. Now it turns out we don't have anywhere near this negative that is thought about, but you have to be open to that. And maybe that points to part of how to get out out of it. And this goes back to the framing issue is that I think you want to frame it as, hey, we need to look carefully at the benefits and side effects. And we need to, part of that is we need to be open to whatever those turn out to be. We can't just say, oh, it's it's good for my political beliefs if they're really bad, or it's bad for my political beliefs if they're really bad, or vice versa. It's like, we really need to do this. And we really need to do it as humans, because what we really, you know, we should all want a more livable world for all of us. And that is just so dependent on do we have low cost, reliable, versatile, scalable uh, energy? And then it also depends on we're not doing anything to our physical environment that's incredibly detrimental that makes the earth unlivable. So I think you, you want to convey in when you frame things, when you talk with things, you want to convey an openness to wherever the facts lead first, and then your interpretation of the facts will be more uh, compelling versus if somebody thinks, say they hear from a trade group and they'll just think, well, the trade group is like, they're just going to say what's good for their industry, no matter what. Like if you're a trade group, you really, you just have to really say, Hey, we've really looked into this. I know it's our industry, but we really looked hard to see if there's a problem. And we think there isn't a big problem where there's a smaller problem than you think, or, or we think there is a big problem, whatever it is. So I think that that you want to be transcendent and, and really be aware of how politicized it is and try to convey that you're open to wherever the facts lead and that this is an issue that we should all care about as humans. So th those are my thoughts on that. And I think with those, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. Alex Epstein, energy expert, founder of the Center for Industrial Progress, New York Times bestselling author. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us your thoughts here and uh, you know, adding another uh, layer to this larger discussion about how do we move forward with our various energy sources and what strategy is going to be most effective in building out not only uh, a continuously developing, uh, you know, human society, uh, but also one that keeps in mind the positive and the negative externalities and um, you know, makes an accurate opportunity cost assessment. I think that's that's really what we're ha having to challenge. So a sophisticated way of putting it, but ac accurate <laughs> opportunity cost assessment is a good, is a good <laughs> right. way of putting what I'm, I'm trying to do. I just say that if people want to, so I really appreciate uh, the conversation, the opportunity to speak here, the opportunity to address uh, Opportune's team when I had that. Um, if people are interested in my work, the, the website fossilfuture.com, you can get my book, you can get it in bulk, you can learn about having me as a speaker. And then the other website I'd recommend is energytalkingpoints.com because that has free talking points on at this point, there's got to be like a thousand of them on every issue you can imagine. And you can just search that website on any topic and you'll get my, my views on it and the references. So I hope you guys all take advantage of that. 
Absolutely. And we'll be sure to link to your book and your research in the description below and in the corresponding article. So folks, I definitely recommend that you give uh, Alex's book a read and, uh, you know, explore and start to challenge some of these narratives um, and at least, you know, put a question mark in your head and seek those answers for yourself. There's clearly a lot of studying to do. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today with the video version of the podcast, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and head to our website, opportune.com, for more information on the uh, you know larger trends and technologies and strategies that are shaping the energy industry. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on the next episode of E2B.